You are listening to an M Pavilion podcast, conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at library.mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. So we will be talking about climate change. We'll be talking about family-friendly cities. We'll be talking about uh, uh, housing. We'll be talking about everything in between. Um, and it's really a, a coming together of like-minded people talking about uh, things that interest us and critical issues for, for cities. Now, I'd just like to um, do some housekeeping. We have uh, the kiosk open, which is um, there's coffee, there's wine, there's everything in between. We have uh, our bathrooms are over at the Arts Centre um, or there is some bathrooms at, at the back of the hill in the gardens, but um, I'd recommend that you probably don't use those and you go to the Arts Centre. And we do have photography happening as well. So just let us know if you don't want to be part of the photography. Maddie's just at the back and she will be um, taking photos. So just let her know. Uh, we also will be asking you to participate in the conversation. So we'd really like you to ask questions of the panel. And we do ask that you come from a place of positivity. We come from a place of positivity in everything we do. So I'd love for you to think about that when you're framing your questions. We'll have uh, hour-long conversations uh, about, oh, sorry, 45 minutes plus Q&A. And there'll be about a half-hour break in between each conversation. Um, we're kicking off a little bit late, so we'll be running a little bit late for the first one, but we'll make up some time. Do stay for the entire day if you've got the energy and, and the uh, free calendar. Um, it's going to be a beautiful day, I think 23 degrees, so I'd really love for you to join us and relax and enjoy. I am now going to hand over to our wonderful editor of Assemble Papers, Jana, who is going to introduce the first session, which is really around our response to climate change. We've got a wonderful group of uh, presenters. Um, and she will also just be, so yes, sort of setting up the context of that conversation. And then we'll be back in and letting you know about the next panels in the, in the coming hours. So sit back and enjoy. Thank you. Thank you. Um, we have one extra mic that is with Maddie or Joni in the back wearing the stripy T-shirt. So the way that we like to do these events is if you – there will be a question time at the end, but if you get a burning question while we're talking, raise your hand. We'll expand the conversation. It's just a little bit nicer that way. Um, yeah, so I'm Jana, the editor of Assemble Papers, and my guests here today are um, – Stephen Choi, architect and project manager and executive director of Living Future Institute of Australia. Um, Jack Mitchell, uh, designer, artist and researcher. Jen Ray, independent artist researcher who has worked um, on climate change related questions for quite a long time now and is part of Refuge um, uh, Artistic Project. Um, and Jeremy Burke, who heads the new product and strategy development at Impact Investment Group. And um, just on that note of coming from a place of positivity, I have had such a rough week um, looking at where we're at with climate change. Um, this is obviously one of the topics that we deal with in, in Assemble Papers constantly but not every day because most of our focus is on housing and architecture and so um, I do have to sort of catch up on where where things are and it's that like, it's not looking very good I have to say so um I checked what's been going on this year found out that um in May 29 like May this year Greta Thunberg was featured on the cover of Time magazine and she was named uh next generation leader because she'd mobilized all the school children around the world and the school strikes for climate, um, starting the Fridays for Future um, movement. Uh, that same month, The Guardian and then followed by some other news outlets has issued new guidance to all staff on language to use when writing about the environment, suggesting that they use the term climate emergency, climate crisis, or climate breakdown instead of climate change. Um, the editor noted, the phrase climate change sounds rather passive and gentle when what scientists are talking about is a catastrophe for humanity. Um, they also changed their preferred terminology from climate skeptic, oh my God, to climate science denier. 
Um, by September this year, more than 170 news outlets around the world have adopted the wording. So we are seeing a real difference in how we're talking about what's going on. Um, then again, this same year, um, we've seen a global climate strike that took place on 20th of September. I was in Berlin at the time. It was uh, beautiful. It was also really sad. Um, there were lots of very, very small kids um, at that event. Uh, but they were, the German media were all reporting on how 350,000 Australians had just um, joined the protests because of the, the time difference that happened earlier that day. And um, that would have made it the largest public demonstrations in Australia since the marches against the war in Iraq. Um, some 15 million people around the world protested, many of them really small children. Greta Thunberg addressed the protest in New York, where she had famously arrived by boat. Um, and she said, uh, entire ecosystems are collapsing, we're in the beginning of a mass extinction. And she said to adults, all you can talk about is money and fairy tales of eternal economic growth. So this was my reading for this week, yeah? So it was, um, it's, it's been a bit rough. And I, as someone who does not deal with this every day, unlike a lot of you here, I really wanted to ask, where are we at? Like the numbers to someone who is not dealing with them every day sound scary, maybe possible, maybe impossible. We've, the world has adopted the Paris Agreement. The Paris Agreement says that we are all committing to keeping... Um, global warming below two degrees, ideally below 1.5. That would mean, if, if we're reading the science, that would mean that um, we, what was it, that we stop burning or releasing carbon dioxide in the next 10 years, is it? Is that doable? Um, Jeremy, you, you work in investment, you understand numbers. Could you maybe tell us what exactly is going on, what we have committed to and what we have to do? Very happy to. And can I just say welcome. You, you, you're joining us on a journey that, that it, is, it is not a good time. It is depressing. Um, but it is all about numbers. And I, I work uh, as an investment professional focused on creating positive investments that can deliver environmental benefits. So I will focus on the numbers for this question and we'll, we'll break it down a bit. Um, the reality is we think, and this is all relatively hypothetical, but the scientists believe we need to have emissions around about 350 parts per million. We sit today as we meet at about 408. So we're already above where we think a safe level is for the planet, for humans on the planet. The planet will survive. It's just whether it's livable for our species and in what, what realm that is. Um, the last time we were at 350 uh, parts per million is around about 1990. So for some people here, that would have been, by the looks of it, uh, well before you were born. For others, it was um, primary school and, and for some others, uh, a, bit, a bit older in your life. It's a long time ago since we had the planet at a safe level. Now, the question around like, where are we at and what can we do, um, we don't actually know what it's going to take from now to get things back to a safe level. There are a series of steps on that journey and the way I find as a coping mechanism and, and kind of having gone through over a long period some of the stuff you're certainly working through is we need to really do three things and they, they have to come incrementally. First, we need to slow the increase in emissions. We are yet to actually do that meaningfully. Secondly, we need them to peak um, and peak emissions is broadly what you're talking about in, in terms of zero emissions, and I'll come, I'll come back to that. And then we actually need to draw down. We need emission levels um, to go negative. So we don't actually need to just reach zero net emissions. We need to start drawing down to allow it to get back to a safe level. Um, the best analogy I've ever had climate science described to me as is a bathtub. If you think of a bathtub, it's got um, water coming in, and it's got a, a plug and, and, and a faucet to allow water to go out. And the emissions are, are how much water's in there. So as long as you're adding water at a rate faster than the water can drain, your volume of water keeps increasing. We are still adding emissions 
uh, faster than we are drawing them down. And so the volume of emissions continues to rise. We need to slow the emissions uh, so that they, there are no more coming into the bathtub and then we need to draw them down. And that will take um, a series of steps that, that we actually don't know what that's going to require. And, and before I kind of hand back, the, the thing about net zero, zero emissions and, and why I think this is a great panel is it's not going to be net zero emissions in every street, it's not going to be net zero emissions in every city, and it won't be net zero emissions in every country. We will continue to have parts of our economy that, for the foreseeable future, emit carbon. Agriculture is a great example. Um, agriculture of any sort, whether it's vegan, vegetarian or, or meat-based, will emit emissions. We're going to need different parts of our economy, different parts of our society to play different roles, just as they do now. And so that's something I'll, I'll hopefully be able to explore um, further over the talk. So we're not in a good place, but we do have, we know what the science requires. And um, where is Australia at? So we have seen a number of n developed nations around the world, most of them in Europe, uh, commit to, you know, 50% reductions, like really massive reductions in their uh, carbon emissions. From what I have uh, seen, the Australian commitment is 26 to 28% reduction by 2030, which would be a quarter, so 24 a quarter of what we have now, but that's not what's happening. What's happening is that um, we're building, the, we're committing to building the biggest mines the world's ever seen, not just one, but a number of them. Uh, and our current prime minister showed up in parliament with coal um, and has also said that this is not our problem because Australia only contributes to, what was it, 1.3% of global emissions. But we know that that's cynical um, and dishonest uh, looking at numbers because if because yes per capita we're not that it's it, we don't make a huge contribution also because Australia has a small population but in terms of the the coal and oil exports we contribute almost five percent of global emissions which is really disproportionate for the small population that we are so seems like we're bad, like we're not really... I mean, you have, so there's only two certainties um, when it comes to climate and carbon accounting. It is hugely complex and Australia will be lying. They are <laughs> the, about the only two certainties. Um, on all measures, we are um, abhorrent on the commitments uh, from the Paris Agreement. Uh, going way back when to Kyoto, um, we gamed that because uh, at the time we did the Kyoto deal, we were clear fouling uh, Queensland forests at a rate that was pretty much unprecedented. Um, we got special rules written to allow us to include stopping clear felling as a positive action. So uh, we, we gamed it way back then and we've continued to game it since. Um, our commitments under Kyoto, under Paris, are um, relatively meaningful on a per capita basis. You can't argue with that but we come from a position where our per capita emissions are pretty much the highest in the world. I think we maybe compete with Qatar. So we're in a, a pretty much a world of our own. Um, so we come from a terrible place and we do moderately well. Um, beyond that, we get nowhere near where we could or should. So um, that, unquestionably the science and the numbers point to us being in a bad place. Jack, seems to me like you wanted to add something to this. Um, yeah, I guess as a counterpoint to sort of... Um that sense of sort of terror that that seems to be around and anxiety around climate change that that we that we feel i mean i i personally feel deeply optimistic and positive about the present and the future and maybe that's delusional but i think it's kind of the only way to go and i think sometimes when we listen to you know listen to the numbers and the science and what politicians and governments say it's very hard to not only take it seriously um, because we mistrust it, but because it's also just terrifying and it becomes this kind of, it's, it's also very abstract, you know, so these figures that get thrown around and have been thrown around for a long time, different, um, you know, meetings of different countries saying these different uh, targets that never seem to be reached and we keep moving, it's like, well, what does that mean to the, to the average person? Um, and it means very little. And I think one of the things that we have to work on as well is trying to actually develop our relationship with, with the environment and with nature and the, the places that we live in so that we're not sort of operating from this global fear kind of thing. It's like, oh my God, the planet's burning. We don't know what to do about it. And then we kind of keep going in our daily lives and it's very easy when the, when the sort of the target seems so, so unachievable, 
then it's very easy to just keep our heads buried in the sand and just kind of, you know, stay on our devices and live, live our life and go through ignoring it. Um, and so I guess like the work that I'm sort of interested in and I've been doing for the last while is working with, um, with, with stories and with kind of relationships with place and trying to get people because, you know, you can have the targets and the, and the, the aims and the um, things that we need to do, but how do you motivate people to actually go and do them? Um, and I think by trying to develop our relationship with, with the places that we live in, um, with, our water, with our waterways, as I've been sort of working on for the last six months, um, yeah, that, and I think that's how you sort of build build empathy and build care and build motivation, so that people actually do go out and make 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 the kind of the local efforts that they can. Um, Jen, your work is quite similar. In we have spoken this year on a number of occasions about what to do with this feeling of grief and powerlessness when looking at the enormity of the change that's happening and exactly the, what Jack has just said, the sort of abstractness of these numbers, these targets, it's global, it's national, what does that mean? Um, it's a very busy day. Um, as an artist, you have been part of, um, I know your work through Refuge, you've been part of it for a long time and so much of your work seems to be about bringing it down in scale to actual people in actual communities on an actual street in an actual neighborhood and making the problem tangible and also creating making the the idea of solutions tangible um not um not perhaps from the place of landscape like jack but from the place of community um could you comment on what jack sa said about uh, the meaning about make the meaning yeah. making here. I, I'm I'm listening between the two of you here, and um, the thing about climate change. So um, up until the last intergovernmental panel on climate changes report last year, um, we didn't have a a time scale. Right? It was always dis a distant time scale in faraway places that these things were going to happen. And then that report came out, and it was I was completely gutted. You know, it said 12 years. 12 years is something that I actually could. It, was, it had meaning, right? And then um, I was in a complete panic. Um, I contacted colleagues saying, you know, this is something that's we're going to see it. it we're, we're confronted with it. And I've been working, a few years ago, um, I decided that I was no longer going to work on climate change, um, climate change adaptation, mitigation. It was this realization that shit's going to happen and what are we going to do about it? And that's when I started working with artists in the disaster preparedness space and working with communities. But with that report in itself, um, it made me think about 12 years in the past. And that took me back to 2006 and 2007. And 2006 is when Facebook was released to the public and Twitter followed right away. And in 2007 was when the iPhone came out. And so if you think about how Social media and the iPhone has transformed our culture. That's where I found hope, was the fact that 11, we have 11 years now, right? I mean, we're having another report that's coming out in the COP25 um, conversations is next week or the week after, you know, but 11 years, we have 11 years. If social media and, um, and uh, so social media and iPhones, mobile technology, have transformed our culture that much. It gives me hope that we have potentially time to do stuff. But, you know, it took all of the skills and knowledges um, to get us to this point. It's going to take all the skills and knowledges to get us out of this point. What are the things that we can start doing now so that in 12 years things are better? One thing that... Um, you say in one of your projects that I found really interesting is um, disaster is a terrible time to learn new skills. Um, <laughs> a lot of your work is about kind of rehearsing what the world, what we might need to be able to do in 12 years time. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, so when that, that time scale, so I started working on this work around 2015. Um, I realized that um, it was around the time that my father died and it was around the time that my daughter was born. And I realized that there was a lot of information that my father knew how to do that I never asked him about. And it's this, the type of skills that my daughter is going to need to know. 
And so I went into this mindset around survival skills and starting to think about what are the skills and knowledges that are at the precipice of being lost. And that's, that's not just generational, but also cross-cultural, that are going to be the skills and knowledges that we'll need into the future. So I think very much in terms of survival skills, I think about what are the skills that I know as an artist that can be translated into contributing to the whole. And, and so, I mean, a lot of what um, we do in Refuge is we imagine disasters and we think about what are the skills and knowledges within our community that we can all come together and start thinking about how we might mobilize in the future. And, and so it's, it's not, um, one of the things about reading survival skill books, they're often written by paranoid white middle-aged men. And... Um, <laughs> And so it's kind of like, what are, the, what, what are the sort of survival skills that we're going to need into the future? And the question is, in Fair Share Fair's work is, what do you know that you don't know that you know that we might all need to know in the, to the future? Um, and, and yeah, and dis disasters are a terrible time to learn new skills. Um, Stephen, you work in the built environment, which is where a lot of our work exists. And the built environment has very, very long timelines like what we build today is going to last a very very long time and is going to have very long-term consequences how has your work evolved from sort of sustainable construction to real kind of advocacy around uh, sustainability and you've moved to Australia as an adult as have I and what does it mean to be living in this country that's sort of trying to be a climate vandal quite actively? Um, honestly, I barely think about climate change. Like most people who work in the built environment have very little relationship to thinking about it very often. Um, I think uh, kind of reflecting on what Jack has said, the challenge is the abstract nature of um, what we're talking about. And also thinking about 11 years or 12 years, the way it's presented, it's like a cliff edge. And at that point, all sorts of things happen, which is, again, not going to be experienced by the everyday citizen. So in the built environment where you're, unless it's this pavilion, it's going to last 50, 60, 100 years, which means every single building right now has to be zero carbon and not through offsets. Um, every single building that is built right now, unlike any of these behind us, um, need to be responsible for generating more of their energy than they consume entirely through renewables. So when you translate that requirement, which is a practical thing, um, to people, investors, or occupiers of buildings, um, I never talk about climate change. What are we, re we really talking about? We're talking about um, health, resilience, independence, uh, an ability to move forward and have the flexibility to have a, have a built environment that works for the people. You know, um, a built environment that can adapt to things that might change in future, and that's not specifically related to the climate or a given day of weather, but, um, you know, even how we might move through a space, the technological changes that happen. And so, um, I, like I say, you, call, you said climate advocacy. I, 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 I don't feel that way personally. Like, um, for me, your, your grief that you sort of opened with is... Grief is difficult because it's paralyzing. And um, when you have loss, a lot of these sort of climate skeptics or climate science deniers, as you mentioned, they don't, they're actually going to use that grief to keep us paralyzed. And that's what will happen. It will be like, it's too late anyway, let's just carry on. But the grief of loss doesn't work like that. If you have four children and one of them passes away, you don't go, oh, don't worry about the last two then. You know? Sorry, I digressed a bit. I just want to comment on the, that grief idea. I think it's really important to grieve as well because that, the grieving process, it's sort of a, it's, it's, it brings it to a reality. A really felt reality and allows that sort of empathetic connection um, and I think we're sort of we become conditioned to not access that in ourselves in the in the world that we live in um, and I think there's this kind of paradoxical thing that goes on where you're trying to get a whole population of people with 
a whole host of you know mental health problems. Most people have experienced some form of depression or anxiety at different stages. Um, to you know, and for for a lot of people, it's kind of like it's hard to you know to that comes with apathy as well. So it's like you're trying to get people to to be to actively care about the future when it's sort of there's a sense of sort of disconnection. And I think there's that that's directly related to the to the crisis that we're in as well. You know, like that disconnection from from nature and from each other. Um, so that that grieving process is really important, and it's like it's something you have to step into and through in order to sort of get to the, that place of motivation and, and, and positivity. Um, yeah, I remember when I was a kid, five or six years old, um, driving in the car with my parents and sitting in the back seat of our Volvo, looking out the back the back windows and seeing a factory with the big columns of smoke coming up and just bursting into tears. And me and my sister both just cried about it. And I only remembered that recently. And I was just like, where, where was that? Where had that feeling gone for the sort of middle 25 years of my life? Because it felt very disconnected from that. And then it's only really been in the last three or four years that that, that kind of, you know, that, that sense of sort of connection to that um, environment has sort of returned. And I think that's, that's really important to access. I wanted to ask you about that because um, you, um, you do very interesting projects that sort of combine art and community and the environment. Um, you've been awarded a Creators Fund from Creative Victoria for the project Black, White and Blue Space to investigate, is this the relationship to water? But then you're also a practicing architect with Jackson Clemens Burroughs, which is... Architectural assistant, right? Architectural yeah. assistant. Apology. Um, which is a conventional architectural practice. How does it... What does it mean to exist between these two worlds? Um, m my sense is that architectural practice has a very weak relationship to a sense of place, despite what it might say it does. Um, where are we at there? Like, how does that contribute to the problems that we have? Um, yeah, I, well, I won't. Um, I've, I've worked in a couple of different practices, and there's very obviously very different. <coughs> Sorry very different um, approaches and values that are driven the same with any any business um, and I guess I'll plug plug my firm right now but um yeah JCB is a firm that I've been really it's that they have a really great approach to that and I think they're they really engage in the indigenous design space and so I work with with Sarah Lynn Reese in that in that kind of um, department a little bit more than sort of straight up design they still you know they do multi-residential buildings commercial buildings, but um, being in that space, they're, they're really aware of that connection to place and the importance of it and, and do really push that agenda. And I, I, I really sort of like their values and it's, it doesn't feel too separate, those, those two worlds. But, you know, also you just, you've got to get paid, don't you? So you need to have a job. But there's some really shocking buildings by JCB too and, um, and not because of you, but I'm saying you, <laughs> you know, reflecting on your point about architects being so you know, architecture not being really about the sense of place, it's so client-driven, isn't it? And um, it's really hard when, you know, as an architect, you have to choose your clients and they choose you and you have to run a business. And a lot of them, are, if they're not driven by this, it's actually quite difficult, isn't it, to encourage them to go further? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I have only been there for a few months, so I'll, um, we'll, we'll see, see what I discover as we go. Do you try to intervene into that space with your work? And um... I literally don't work on anything else. And how do you do that? I, well, uh, it's, a, it's a real question of how. I'm not challenging you at all. I'm really yeah, curious. Well, you have to structure your life and then your business around the work that, you are, what, that you're happy to do. And so if you are in a position where you, um, you're extremely reliant and dependent on someone giving you money, then you have, to, you have to choose work or let work choose you that isn't against your values. And so I've just decided not to do that. So I, I don't work on any building that doesn't generate more energy than it consumes. Full stop. Um, speaking of money, Jeremy, I wanted to ask about the role that enlightened, shall we put it, finance has in changing things because it seems to me that over the past few years it's been really the banks and the insurance companies and 
um, finance that has led a lot of really significant change in, um, let's call it climate action very broadly. I mean, I was researching the coal mines in Australia and it does seem like it's been the lack of finance internationally and then also nationally that has stopped a number of them from proceeding in the face of really quite enormous political support. Could you comment? And sure, I'm certainly not an here. apologist for the finance sector, so let's start there. Um, there is a lot happening, and there's a lot happening in finance, and there's a lot happening in insurance. Um, predominantly, I would say, uh, actually because of two things, consumer pressure. Um, so when we speak to large superannuation funds, particularly industry funds, um, they are feeling a lot of pressure from their members. So um, the industry funds in Australia have um, enormous balances, some of them in the, in the tens and hundreds of billions of dollars. And um, one of the things for anyone who's in an industry fund can do is just email them and tell them you care about climate and, and they're listening. Um, so the changes around, uh, so coal in particular, is the energy sector and the investment sector is very Darwinian. So by that I mean that the, the kind of weakest doesn't survive and within the, the fossil fuel industry, um, coal is broadly recognised as the weakest and so the rest of the industry is actually really happy for the pressure to be on coal um, because it takes away the pressure from oil and it takes away the pressure from gas. So um, you get this really peculiar alliance of climate activists, concerned citizens and parts of the fossil fuel industry happy to have coal hung out to dry because that saves and then you look at New South Wales Energy, Energy Minister came out with a, a passable plan this week but of his top five priority projects, two of them are gas and they're big gas plants, like massive gas plants. Um, so we are winning in one sense where we're, we're able to collectively pick off projects and we're able to pick off part of the industry. Um, but th there's a term that's, that's becoming stronger in the US around predatory delay. Um, and it really resonates with me because often you'll see people and you think, well, why are they saying that? Why is the Australian industry group coming out and advocating for that policy? And actually it's not because they don't like um, the specific thing they're advocating against, it's because they're protecting the rest of the sector. And we're starting to see that really um, gas uh, positioned itself as what it called a transition fuel to, to allow us to build more renewables. But every time we build a gas project, we're locking in 20, 30, 40 years um, where they need to be operating and polluting. So um, we actually need to be taking a much more holistic view where we say, well, actually, it's not just coal, it's also gas and it's also... Um, expanding oil usage, all of that is not acceptable. So I think you're right. I think we are seeing progress. I think it is um, once you trace it through the, the intermediaries in the, and the many organisations in it, whether it's rating agencies or um, insurance and, and banks, um, it's, it's genuinely consumer-led and there is an absolute fear within corporate Australia um, around consumers turning against them. What else can we do other than email our... Uh, industry funds. No, it's a, it's a real question. I often yes. think, wow, wouldn't it be amazing if I had millions of dollars to invest in green energy? But like, that's not most people's living situation. Like, how can we, like, can we do anything? How can we sort of help? I mean, the big, the, the kind of sleeping giant in Australia um, is superannuation. So for many people, um, it's their, if, they, if they're lucky enough to own their home, it's their second largest asset or, or pool of assets. Um, for many young people, it will actually be their largest asset because times are very tight and they've got a lot of university debt. So um, the power of understanding, your, and it's dead boring, like superannuation is probably the most boring thing in the world, but understanding what your superannuation uh, group is doing on behalf of you, um, and if you don't like what they're doing, moving it, is a process you can do in about half an hour. So I always say to people, it's probably... Um, there's statistics out there. We work with a group called Future Super. They're Australia's first fossil-free superannuation company. Um, they won't invest in fossil fuels um, and they will invest heavily in renewables. By their estimate, um, anything else you do, meat-free diet, uh, travelling less, reducing your consumption, has broadly 
uh, 20% of the impact of moving a, a superannuation balance of $30,000, um, which is massive. So I would say the number one thing is superannuation. And the second thing is talking to people. Um, if we really want to affect change, we need to be taking this conversation um, much more broadly than me in my inner city um, climate bubble can do. We need to be going out and talking to um, a much broader group of people about what their money and uh, how it aligns with their values. So change your super, change your bank, change your energy provider, um, make huge differences. You, right, you can right. extend that to everything, right? It's like, you know, when, when you go to buy eggs in the supermarket, people will either choose free-range ones or caged ones. Now, there's no effect whatsoever on you as an individual, a direct effect on which eggs you choose. But you might have values that say, well, I might even check how many hens per hectare on the box. And so super is one thing. There's no reason everyone in this pavilion right now can't change to 100% green power plus gas. Um, and it will be a negligible change, right? No reason at all. Everyone should do it. Sorry. No worries. <laughs> Excuse me, no worries. All right, I have, okay, so besides divestment, right, or, you know, using your dollar, you know, to, to make more proactive choices, what, what about, like, a debt protest? Like, what if all people who have student loans stop paying their student loan debts back? What if everyone who had a mortgage for three months didn't pay their mortgage? Like, is there anything that we can do that can actually have that sort of impact that forces the hand of governments, that forces the hands of banks or anything like that if en masse there's a protest? I mean, in theory, the poll tax in the UK took down a government, so there's been a a history previously in a, in a, in a country very relatively similar to ours. Um, so yes, those, those kind of things would absolutely have an impact. But in terms of where action can take place in Australia, um, we can do a lot at the state level, and we're starting to see some of that leadership without the federal government acting. Um, we could do a lot more if the federal government acted. So one of the things that... Um, I'm, I'm well through the grief curve on this stuff. Um, the, the arguments last week around the fires, um, around is it the time to talk about climate change, um, yeah, the nationals behaving as they did and, 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 and you would expect them to do, was for me a good sign. Um, too often uh, we collectively, I'll use the kind of royal we, we want this to be a nice transition. We want to go from here to there. And we want it to be planned and we want it to be friendly and we don't actually want to have a fight. Um, that's human nature. Um, the reality is uh, we actually want a, s a number, and we can name them, and we know who they are, of businesses to not exist. And that's actually a really combative piece uh, of belief. Like, we literally want businesses to go out of action, and we want the jobs to no longer be there. And because inherently we, we don't want to talk about that, we don't want to face up to the consequences of that, we don't. Um, last week, the Labor Party had an opportunity to absolutely ostracise the nationals and throw them under the bus, and they chose not to. They chose to stay in the centre and not engage in a debate where if we really want to get action at a federal government level, they need to recognise that their jobs and their seats and their mandate is at risk, and it is. They've got a one-seat majority. They need two people to get drunk and get fines and have by-elections, um, and they, we could be in a hung parliament very quickly. So... Um, all of the things that can point in that direction, whether it's absolutely, I mean, there, there's some great, I don't know who would organise that, but, but making banks and making the federal government really understand what this means. Um, the school strike was fantastic, right? To, I've been on climate strikes in London where we were setting them up and we had their MI5 or whoever it was filming us all, so we're all on, they've got us all on tape, and then you're wandering along and there's not many of you and they're tiny, and then the anarchists kick off. You're like, shit, I don't actually be here. I might be relatively centrist, but I'm not hanging out with these guys. Um, the school strike was amazing because you had um, students, like being led by students, for students, secondary students, who just pay, all came in like school uniforms and they bought their parents. I mean, it just, the vibe was so different to anything I've seen. Um, and they are a group of people who don't have large mortgages, who can go for values-aligned careers. I mean, you talk about trying to recruit young people these days into financial services is becoming really difficult. Um, so I think the more that we look at these types of actions and, and those pointier ones that you mentioned, 
there's, there's an opportunity there, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I mean, their rationale was, why go to school? Because schools aren't going to exist in the future. I mean, it's the same thing with houses. I hate, like, our houses aren't, are, are not going to have value, you know? And so, like, why not stop paying the mortgage yeah. now, you know? Or why, why pay back the student debt? And then 600 schools in New South Wales got closed last week because of fires. It's, it's, the, the irony is not lost on anyone. Why, why go to school? Yeah, exactly. Um, Jen, you work with young people quite a lot, and I, um, we, uh, we work quite a lot with uh, people that are young people of university age. And just from personal experience, the generation coming through now is the most engaged and non-trivial in terms of their concerns that I have seen in a very, very, very long time. Um, and that question of legacy, like what have we left for future generations? We've left them quite a lot of problems to deal with. Like how do we as adults support this sort of action coming from uh, school children? I, I think we listen to them. Mm -hmm. um, we give them space to ask questions. We ask, um, how can we move aside? How can we support? You know, um, at the Refuge Lab, I don't know if you were there, um, but the woman from the Climate Warriors, the head of the Climate Warriors in the Pacific Islands, um, we, ha we asked her a question. Um, Refuge has a creative lab, just to contextualize this, where a bunch of different experts from communities local government, academia, and so forth, come together to look at a climate-related problem. So we did a flood, we did a heat wave, we did a pandemic, and this year we did um, um, mass displacement in the Asia-Pacific region. And so we had, um, her name's Jacinta, I just can't remember her last name, um, from the Climate Warriors, and a question came from the floor asking, okay, you know, there's a lot of Gen Xers in the room here, you're obviously a millennial, you know, what, is the, what can the Gen X generation do for the millennials? And I don't think the Gen X generation expected this response, but she just said, just get out of the way, right? And, <laughs> and I, I was going, okay, well, the, you know, the Gen X generation is very good at doing that, you know? But, like, how can we work together? You know, how can we bridge these divides? Right now we've got the, um, the millennials and the OK Boomer Thing happening in this fight, but how can we work together is more of, of the issue, and I think we have to listen to each other. We need to say, what can we do to support this? Because really, we're all going to be affected by this. It's not... Um, it, it, it. Um, uh, could I add something? So one of the things um, that's fascinated me is that we've um, become so individualistic and when we look at retirement, sorry to come back on this, we, we invest for our longevity period. We ask 60-year-old people when they retire to only look at how long they may live. And that's a huge missed opportunity. So I, I talk about intergenerational investment. So um, if my dad now at 70-something is investing, why on earth with five children and two grandchildren would he be investing in oil and gas, whereas he can take a long-term view on... on the fact that he's probably fortunately going to be able to hand a small amount of money to me, he can invest in renewables in a way that I can't. Um, so one of the big things we've been talking about generationally is how do we link this up so that we don't lose the, the fact that um, older people, working people's taxes paid for younger people's education. Now older people's retirement funds can pay for younger people's clean future. Um, on that individualism and just responding as well to um, what Stephen said about the consumer choices. I think sometimes there's an unfair pressure put on the individual to make these kind of consumer ethical choices. Well, it's not, not an unfair pressure. It's also a, a privilege to be in a position to be able to think ethically when you go to shop when there's the majority of people who live in this, live in this country don't get to make that choice and are just, you know, thinking about the bottom dollar because they're trying to sort of survive. So that, that idea of, you know, and then you, you go to the supermarket and you buy a few, you know, buy free range eggs and chicken and or, or no meat at all and then, you know, some... Um, free free trade food and you sort of feel better about yourself and you go home you think you've sort of done your bit and it's kind of a I think it's a it's an illusion but it's also then difficult to work out how do you how do you operate as an individual in an individually in a, in a society that promotes individual consumerism um it's a good time to ask if there's any questions uh, Joni's there with the microphone and we've been talking for quite some time now Georgia Hi, everyone. 
Um, thanks for the conversation. It's been great. Um, I feel like a lot of what I've heard this afternoon has been talking about how humans can help other humans through this situation. Um, and when I think about the kind of transformational change that Jen is mentioning, like with the iPhone and so on, what occurs to me is arriving in a situation 12 years from now where um, we aren't so focused on humans and where we, have, we can extend the intimacy and empathy that we have for one another to life forms that are not human. Um, does that, I don't know if, like, I just want to ask whether anyone on the panel has thoughts about whether that seems like a viable approach, whether you have experiences related to something about extending our empathy and our climate action beyond what's possible for humans to do with other humans and looking at what we can do with other life forms. Like First Nations people have done for millennia here? Yeah. Mm. Well, I'm... I'm not indigenous to Australia, but all the people I work with who are, there's a knowledge system there which is remarkably sophisticated to the point that I actually don't understand. I'm, I try and understand. It's difficult to understand. If, um, if that tree over there dies, part of me dies, you know, if um, that bird in that tree also is unhappy, then I'm unhappy. And... Um, this is like thinking beyond generation and where we are. Um, and I think a lot of what I have understood is the sharing of knowledge in those highly sophisticated systems is based on providing the knowledge to someone when you think they're ready to receive it. For me, that's something that um, the climate sustainability consultants get really wrong all the time. There's a lot of preaching to people who don't want to hear it. There's a lot of alarmist when we need to be alarmist, but it's not necessarily the best method to get things forward. And when you look at the school's uh, strike, it was remarkable, but at the same time, it was a very small demographic, actually. Um, unfortunately, when, if you were there and you looked across the crowd, I was surprised by, actually, it's not everyone here. It's a particular kind of child with a particular kind of parents. And so... I mean, Jack, you, you could talk actually with any sort of authority about this, but when we were, like, not long ago, a few hundred years ago, this was land that was us. And now we've kind of put trees in cages, which we call a park. And we don't know any different. Like, we don't know. So the grief that you feel, the kids of today, this is their new baseline. So they don't know either. So you worry about what you tell your children. Probably you don't have to tell them very much because they wouldn't have known what they've, they've lost in the same way that we seem to not know what we've lost. And Australia, for me, is like the absolute perfect example of somewhere where there's been a loss beyond imagination, literally beyond imagination. I think, um, yeah, that, there's a sense sometimes people sort of, are, you know, obviously beginning to understand that relationship that Indigenous Australians have and or had in a stronger way, but have with with uh, with place and country and the landscape. Um, but it's not something that that custodial kind of nature is not something that is inaccessible to non-indigenous people. And that's it's just that develops from awareness and it develops from um, being being somewhere and that that you know for for long enough and seeing those kind of meta patterns that that occur within within nature and recognizing your your place in it and recognizing that you are a part of it um yeah so I, th I think often people see that as like oh that's an that's an indigenous kind of thing um i can't have that relationship or oh, what's the knowledge you know can you can people tell us it's like it's accessible that that custodial role is something that we all have to um step into i think you don't think we should essentialize um a sense of place to be specific to certain people but it's that it's something that we can all access, that it's a matter of learning rather than being born with it. In that sense, essentially. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a matter, of, like, in the same way that any kind of generational behavioural pattern um, occurs, and whether I'm not a geneticist or understand any of that kind of um, how those things get passed down, but I think, like, pa patterns of behaviour that get repeated for long enough become sort of an ingrained pattern that become a part of you. Um, so then there's that sense that, oh, that belongs to those people because they were doing it. We just, if you want to engage with it, like, um, 
Maya Ward is a who walked the length of the um, Birrung, did a 21-day journey, um, and had she wrote a book about it, and she was on a panel that we had last night, and she was talking about um, the development that she had with she developed this relationship with the river um, that sort of transformed her life, and I, I find that really interesting as a non-indigenous person to sort of have developed. And Auntie Faye, uh, no, who was it? Auntie Joy um, Murphy sort of t said to her, like, you, you have this dreaming now. You've developed this dreaming. It's part of your responsibility. Um, I think that's a really beautiful and important story to know that, that, that access to the access to, to sort of indigenous knowledge systems, um, you know, well, not necessarily knowledge systems because Stephen was right in terms of, you know, there's certain things get, get passed on when, when people are sort of deemed ready. But... Um, a mode of understanding, a mode of kind of being in the world and relationship with nature is not, yet yeah, accessible to everyone. Um, other questions? Can you hear me now? Um, recently I've been involved with the Extinction, Extinction Rebellion and um, was part of some of the strikes. And one of the things that really struck me about being engaged with that, particularly walking through the city, was how people on the sidelines, um, you know, crowds, uh, people shopping, looked at us like we were pariahs. And there were a huge number of people, as I'm sure lots of people here were involved as well. Um, and what concerns me is how do we engage more people in the issues that everyone's discussed discussing the reality is um, in many facets of the issues we're talking about people don't want to understand and they don't want to be involved so I'll give you there's a, there's a lot of people trying to set up green energy retailers it's it's clean it's got it got a good brand um, most people don't care about their electricity whether it's green they just want it to be on and cheap and that's the re and so some of the change that we're looking for, it's not available. The, the, a lot of people, are in, in the way I don't engage in music and the arts, in the way many people here, and, and I, it's to my detriment, but it's who I am. Um, many people out there won't be, it's not available for them to get as involved in these issues as we are. So we need to start by recognising where they're at and understanding a lot of what drives that and how do we get systemic change that can take people along so that the free rider effect works with what we want to do rather than against it. And at the moment, the free rider effects work against what we're trying to do. So it is about um, what underlying what do people want. They want a safe environment for their families. They, want, they do want nature. We know that. We know that um, renewables are, are desired by more people than any um, politician. They're, they're, they're much more popular. Um, people want to be able to get from A to B efficiently, uh, cheaply, and they want to be able to get there safely. So when we talk about public transport, we, we, I don't think we need to talk about public transport in the context of it um, being green. We need to talk about it in the context of being the easiest way to do things. So a lot of it for me is actually the, the long tail of people in this space aren't going to resonate with the same things that deeply concern us, um, and as well as... We need, we need to move the system so it, it, it's inherent. We have to understand that. It's also okay that they don't because not everyone will be involved in the same way. Um, during the last election, when it was going to be the climate election, you know, everyone just, I, I mean, what everyone in my bubble um, thought, you know, we wouldn't get the government that we ended up getting. And um, what that revealed for me was that I had lived in a bubble. And when I saw the map and saw where everyone was voted, or voted for the, um, the libs, I just was, uh, it was, it was really confronting. And it, at that time I was going up to Canada and I met somebody named James Hogan who runs a blog called Dismog Blog. And he comes from public relations and a lot of his work is about looking at how his public, public relations know-how can be given to the good side. And in a keynote presentation, he talked about propaganda. And he spoke how propaganda, we often think, is about 
the um, about information, how it's been, you know, manipulated and obscures inf information to the public. And but he said one of the the more sinister sides of propaganda is that it creates teams, it creates divisions. And one of the things that we can do is actually to break down those divisions and having difficult conversations, right? And leaning into the tension and focusing on the relationships. But to have these difficult conversations outside of our bubbles, that's how we start to bridge understanding. Because he said that, you know, most of us will, will even though we won't agree with the politics, we'll often stick with our teams. So having these difficult conversations is one way, and we can do that within our communities of influence. So if you're centering on the relationship, not the argument, you know, that's one way that we can... It's just one of the most exciting things for me recently, um, and this will, uh, I'll say it anyway, Shane Warne is now promoting solar and batteries. Like, <laughs> seriously, this is like the combination of my two loves in the 1990s. Um, that will have more impact than a Greens politician standing up and saying X, Y, Z. Like, we need to cross over in any way that matters and take, put all pretension aside, and it's fantastic that he's doing it. He's getting paid. Like, it's just, it's just not Fujitsu. Uh, I know I'm moderating here, but I just wanted to add, um, I briefly worked in Brussels where I sat on a number of these amazing meetings where 28 countries were trying to decide on climate action, all coming from completely different interests. And I remember entering these meetings and thinking, there's no way that this will ever work. This is a disaster. And then watching people find consensus between 28 sides. Just watching them find the areas where they agreed and dealing with that and then expanding that a little bit more to find a bit more agreement and agreements coming through. And it was really life-changing for me, just understanding that actually it's not rocket science. It's not magic. It's really just focusing on what you share and just leaving aside what, where you disagree until you have enough agreement that you can deal with that. Um, the most interesting experience I've had from Refuge, where we were invited this year, was um, uh, being introduced to amazing uh, Aboriginal Australian artists and thinkers who um, have largely said, you know, this is a very old culture. We have a lot of cultural memory of really significant climate change in the past. Multiple events in multiple parts of Australia where... Um, you know, significant change where uh, the environment was changed, culture was changed, a lot of people, like populations were reduced. We have that knowledge and let's, let us tell you about it. Let's talk about it. We can learn something from each other. Um, I think that's the only way forward, perhaps. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I don't have that knowledge. Um, and I don't know if... I think that the difference in that kind of... Um, those, those previous big climate shifts that um, Indigenous people lived through and adapted to um, is that this is just happening so rapidly um, that it doesn't mean that it's <coughs> the same knowledge shouldn't be shouldn't be drawn on. But um, yeah, I mean, for me, for me, I'd, yeah, I'd, I also just can't really speak speak to it. Um, Um, I remember the day that you're talking about that Cassie Lynch, who's a descendant of the Noongar people, um, she talked about um, floods 6,000 years ago um, where her people um, basically had to retreat from, from the shores and went into a system called refugium. And I actually looked this word up. Um, and it means like when a, an environment becomes volatile, organisms will come together and they will re... re um, design their governance before they go back out into the world again. And when, she, when Cassie Lynch was talking about this, she said that um, they used to have different hierarchies of government before this big flood. And what they realized is that that governance wasn't going to work into the future. And that's when they, they decided to have the Council of Elders. And therefore, decision-making would be held amongst the group. And all of the different elders would be a part of the decision-making. And I think that that is a really beautiful way to think about the future. Um, what you were talking about there in Belgium, was it, or Brussels? Yeah, like, I mean, um, Felix Guattari talks about um, cultivating dissensus as opposed to consensus, because we're often trying, and I mean, the climate, you know, climate scientists spent so much time trying to get consensus, 
um, if we take that to the relational level, we don't have to agree on everything, but we can agree on one thing. We all don't want to die, you know, or we, we, we all want to be fed, you know, like, so what can we, how can we put our differences aside and how can we find common objectives to move forward? What percentage of people are actually paying for renewable over people who are happier with cheap uh, energy and just wanting the, the lights on? Uh, it's a, a tiny number of people elect to voluntarily do it. Um, so the challenge you've got in... So I don't actually know the exact number, but it, um, we shouldn't see it as people choosing not to because um, most people... Like, I think a statistic I saw, you're more likely to die than change banks. And it's not going to be far off that for our electricity companies. Now, someone did say to me, yeah, but you only die once. And I'm like, yeah, okay, that's a fair point. But each year, very few people change their electricity supplier. It's something like 20%. But we know that people in that 20% change very regularly. So you can game the system and you can get lots of benefits from that. So most people are just with the electricity company they've always been with. They don't engage. They care when they're surveyed, but the apathy is real. So the, the challenge there is how do you encourage people to move, but then also how do we make the default options cleaner? So how do we stop the people who, the, the, big, six, uh, the big four or six um, who've got about 80% of consumers, how do we pressure them to be cleaner? Yeah, I think it's just an interesting point when, you, when we're talking about talking to people, keeping in mind that perhaps 80% of our community are not really thinking about that, this. So we've got a real responsibility. That's wonderful. We are running very late and it's probably time to end. Um, can you join me in thanking our, our wonderful panel members? And You are listening to an M Pavilion podcast, conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at library.mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts.